0: For centuries, mankind has been governed by law and justice. In fact, the virtue is likely one of the very first cornerstones of our civilized society. Take the Code of Hammurabi, for instance, one of the oldest legal writings known to man. Dating back to 1792 BCE, this codex contains 282 laws established by King Hammurabi, as a standard code of conduct for the citizens of ancient Babylonia. The laws instilled in this text are fairly straightforward, outlining everything from trade and building codes to property and even domestic affairs. And as I'm sure you may have guessed, the consequences of crime and punishment are described in great detail right there in black and white. But even after this law of man was set in stone, humanity continued to grapple with the concepts of morality. The works of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and countless others are all indicative of this, each pondering the blurred lines between right and wrong. All of this is a drawn out way of saying that we have long been fascinated by the duality of good and evil. What qualities make up a good person, what actions are that of an evil one, and who of us is even qualified to decide? But perhaps most importantly, what happens when our laws are no longer upheld, and justice is wrongfully served? Well, as it turns out, the repercussions of such mistakes can be quite haunting. I'm Courtney Hayes and you're listening to Haunts. Stay tuned. first glance, Lancashire County, England would appear to be a peaceful and serene place to call home. And for the most part, that assumption would be true. Between the region's rich history, pristine coastlines, and wide rolling hills, well, it's no wonder why Lancashire is routinely voted as one of the best places to live in all of the British Isles. But even in the midst of this tranquil locale, lies a rather chilling legend. It all began in the borough of Pendle, where two prominent families were feuding in the shadow of an otherwise unsuspecting hill. At the end of the 16th century, Elizabeth Southerns of the Demdiki family worked as the borough's local healer, which is precisely why she was regarded in town as a witch. And by extension, the same was often said for her family. Now, given the grim connotations that often surrounded the term witch, this may sound like bad news bears for Elizabeth and her loved ones. But as it turns out, witches and healers of the era were actually pretty well respected. In fact, up until the year 1603, when King James I published his renowned pamphlet on demonology and black magic, witchcraft was revered as a fascinating topic in the eyes of the British public. So it comes at no surprise that the Demdikeys were very well-liked within this close-knit community. Not to mention, Elizabeth herself had spared many of her neighbors from a great deal of pain and suffering over the years. So for that, they would forever be in her debt. But even in spite of her glowing professional reputation, Elizabeth Southerns wasn't well-liked by every single member of the Pendle community, and Anne Whittle, of the Chaddix family, was likely her most outspoken adversary. You see, Chaddock's was another prominent name in Pendle at the time, and this family too was known to dabble in witchcraft. Presumably This was cause for both households to constantly be at each other's throats. One would accuse the other of stealing large sums of money, chronic ailments were often pinned on the opposing family, and blame was being cast out for everything from major misfortunes to minor inconveniences, for this was a vicious and unproductive cycle that played out over the course of several decades. Simply put, these two rivaling families had a lengthy and tumultuous relationship, one that would ultimately end in fire, at the top of the now infamous Pendle Hill. It was the first day of spring, 1612, when Alison Device of the Demdiki family took a stroll through trodden forest. I can only imagine that the woodland was finally full of life, now that the brutally long and unforgiving winter was over. Allison herself likely felt invigorated, with the energy of the forest enveloping her as she wandered through the trees. At some point along her way, Allison encountered a peddler named John Law, along with his son Abraham. The father-son duo had been traveling to their home in Halifax, but upon this encounter, the three travelers stopped to exchange pleasantries. And that's when Allison saw it, a glittering piece of metal pinned to John's waistcoat. The brooch was likely a simple little thing, but back in those days, even the most superficial of pins would have been considered a sign of wealth. Not to mention, these glittering items were often used in witchcraft which may have been why Allison offered to buy the pendant off of him. Now, from what I could tell, Allison's proposal was a bit more assertive in nature. In fact, her offer came out as more of a demand than a simple request. Not to mention, the pendant wasn't for sale, so John kindly declined. By the time that the travelers parted ways, Allison had grown quite disgruntled, muttering bitterly under her breath as she walked away. John, on the other hand, only made it a few more steps before falling to the ground. As it seemed, Allison Device had placed a curse on John Law. In the weeks that followed, John's sudden illness began to take a toll. He had become bedridden, too weak to even move about his home. Meanwhile, Allison Device was instead plagued by her guilt. You see, Allison was a good person, at least by her own measure. She was not a healer like her grandmother, and she certainly never intended to curse an innocent man. She had merely wanted to strike a bargain, so how could things have come to this? As the days passed, poor Allison could not bear it any longer, so she sent for Abraham Law. Together, the pair traveled back to Halifax, where Allison sat by John's bedside and prayed for a smooth recovery. But in the end, this would not save Allison from the events that were about to transpire, because even as she wept at John's bedside, a perfect storm was brewing on the outskirts of this once quiet community. And as we are about to see, when it rains in the borough of Pendle, it pours. Looking at this story through a more modern lens, I think we can all agree that the sudden onset of John Law's symptoms were merely coincidental. In fact, most historians believe that John Law suffered a stroke on that fateful afternoon at the precise moment that Alison DeVice began to mutter mindlessly to herself. By today's standards, it's an open-shut case of being at the wrong place at the wrong time and likely nothing more. But back in the spring of 1612, Alison's apparent guilt was damn near overwhelming. So, come April 30th, Alison Device, along with her mother Elizabeth and her brother James, attended a hearing with Justice Roger Noel. Now for some contextual background. You should know, it was around this time that the narrative surrounding the term witch was changing in England. As we learned earlier in the episode, topics relating to witchcraft were generally praised by the British public during the 16th century. However, in 1603, King James I released his dissertation entitled Demonology, which covers the topics of necromancy, black magic, and coincidentally, the practice of witch hunting. As always, I will include a copy of the pamphlet in this episode's show notes. But for now, it should be mentioned that this document incited the very first witch trials of Great Britain. And among the countless accused were none other than Alison Device in the Demdike family. So, in light of that, let's continue with the family's first impressions of Justice Roger Noel. When they first entered the judge's home, Alison and her family were likely met with animosity. After all, Allison had intentionally caused John Law's untimely death by means of magic, and what's worse is that Allison, being the granddaughter of a seasoned healer, likely could have spared him if only she had tried, or so Abraham Law testified during this first meeting. Allison, on the other hand, told a slightly different version of this story. Now, she did admit to cursing John Law, but not in the sense that you might think. You see, Allison's mutterings were more akin to our own frustrations, when we are stuck in rush hour traffic or forget to buy bread at the grocery store. She had been irritated, sure, but Allison never set out to curse anyone. And for that matter, she wasn't entirely convinced that she was capable of such a feat. Because as it turns out, Allison Device had never practiced magic a day in her life. But even she had to admit, the timing had been uncanny and she had been overcome by feelings of guilt for weeks. So, maybe Allison had unknowingly cursed John Law as they parted ways in Trodden Forest, and given her lack of experience in the area of witchcraft, she didn't have the know-how to reverse it. In the end, Allison Device made a full confession for her crimes as a witch, and so it was decided that she would go to trial Only she had no intentions of going down alone because as we all know by now, the misfortunes of the Demdiki family often meant the same for the house Chaddocks. By the time that Allison left her hearing before Justice Roger Noel, three more members of the Pendle community had been accused of witchcraft. According to Allison's own testimony, Anne Chaddock's Whittle of the Chaddix family, along with her daughter Anne Redfern, had together murdered a total of five men by means of magic. And among those victims was none other than Allison's own father, John Device. It was a bold claim to make, Accusing two of her own neighbors, who weren't present or even involved in the situation at hand, of such a serious crime. But be that as it may, these allegations caught Justice Noel's attention. So, in the days that followed, Chaddix and Anne, alongside their longtime rival, Elizabeth Southerns, were summoned to their own hearing at the Noel residence. And by the end of the discussion, both matriarchs had admitted that they too had sold their soul to the devil. Anne Redfern, on the other hand, remained adamant in her innocence. That is, until her own mother pointed a finger at her. So, it would seem, no one was safe from blame. In blood? Well, it doesn't always run thicker than water. Before all was said and done, Six more would be accused of witchcraft. Along with Elizabeth and James Device, Catherine Hewitt, John and Jane Bullock, and Alice Gray had all been found guilty of witchcraft before their trial had even began. So, they were sent to Lancaster Castle, where they were doomed to wait four long months. Then, on August 18, 1612, their nightmare truly began. The Pendle Witch Trials, as they are known today, took place over the course of only two days, during which those accused were denied witnesses who could testify to their innocence. But here's the kicker. The trial was then based solely around the testimony of a nine-year-old girl. I can only imagine the anxiety that young Janet Device must have felt as she took the stand. In the days leading up until that point, she was likely given a slew of instructions, what to say, when to say it, and who to say it to, all while being asked to look her own mother dead in the eyes throughout the entire song and dance. And to top it all off, she likely didn't mean a single word of the story she told. The following are the words of Janet Device during her mother's trial. My mother is a witch, and that I know to be true. I have seen her spirit in the likeness of a brown dog, which she called Ball. The dog did ask her what she would have him do, and she answered that she would have him help her to kill. Her youngest child's testimony sent Elizabeth Device into a fit of hysteria. She screamed and cried as they forcibly removed her from the courtroom, all while her own daughter, said the words that would ultimately sentence her to death. Only Alice Gray was found not guilty for the crime of witchcraft. And as such, she was the only one spared from the mayhem about to ensue. As for the rest, well, it would seem that the family's rivaled reputations had finally caught up to them. So the following day, the now-confirmed witches of the Demdickey and Chaddock's families were marched to the top of Pendle Hill. It was there, at the site of the Lancaster Gallows, that these nine accused paid the ultimate price for their supposed sins. And if the rumors are true, the now-defamed Pendle witches may still remain there till this day. It's no question that the story of the Pendle Witch Trials is frightening in its own right. But even so, we are still missing a very important element to this tale, one that's a bit more ghostly in nature. So before we end today's episode, let's return to the top of Pendle Hill, only now in a more modern era. Over the last five centuries, Pendle Hill has formed quite a haunting reputation, In fact, locals of the surrounding townships rarely visit the site or even speak about the events surrounding the Pendle Witch Trials, evidently being too fearful that they themselves may be haunted or cursed by the spirits of this hillside. Maybe it's just a local superstition, based on a centuries-old story that, while tragic, remains only that, a story. But for those of us who are brave enough to take the trip out to Pendle Hill for ourselves. We may just find that there is some merit to those claims. Now, given the rich but dark history of Pendle Hill, it's no wonder why this haunt is a popular destination for paranormal enthusiasts and investigators, many of whom report strange experiences at the site. The most common report is that those visiting Pendle Hill will experience an overwhelming sense of anger. Only this rage is apparently not their own. Instead, the feeling is more of an external force that captivates the senses. So it would seem the spirits haunting the location aren't too welcoming of their frequent guests. And as such, they are not afraid to show their displeasure. Take the experience of Derek Acura, for instance who visited Pendle Hill to film an episode of the Travel Channel series Most Haunted in 2004. Now Derek Akira is an accomplished spirit medium, one who has investigated some of the most haunted locations in the world. So an investigation of Pendle Hill should have been fairly straightforward. And it was at first, that is until he connected with the spirit of none other than Elizabeth Device, who was not too happy to see him in fact, Elizabeth told Akira that there was a total of nine spirits present, and none of them wanted the crew to be there. Now, it's worth mentioning that Akira's work has sparked some controversy over the years. So it's not hard to dismiss this experience as nothing more than a bit of TV magic. But I should tell you, things only got stranger for the Most Haunted team as they continued filming the episode. In fact, not long after Akira connected with the spirit of Elizabeth Device, a member of the crew was attacked by an unseen force, stating even that the spirit tried to strangle them. Again, maybe this was a bit of TV magic, but still, it's quite the chilling claim nonetheless. Now you don't have to work on a paranormal TV show to have an experience at Pendle Hill. In fact, countless of independent investigators have told their own frightening stories about this haunt. And in my opinion, at least, it's these experiences that hold a bit more substance. For example, Haunted Happenings is a team of paranormal investigators based in Nottingham, England. And on one of their many investigations of Pendle Hill, they collected quite the interesting piece of evidence. On the night in question, the Haunted Happenings team was conducting an experiment using a Ouija board when they heard the sound of something hard hitting the table. Now mind you, the team was entirely alone, with nothing around but a few old but well-maintained buildings. So you can imagine their surprise when they found a single tooth sitting at the center of their board. By now, you may be wondering what came of young Janet DeVice after her entire family had been hanged at Pendle Hill. Throughout history, the girl has been painted both as a martyr who was forced to testify against her own family and an ungrateful child who was all too willing to send them to the gallows. But regardless of the true role she played in this tale, In the end, Janet Device couldn't escape her late family's notoriety. In fact, decades after the Pendle Witch Trials, she too was accused of witchcraft and ultimately lost her life at the very same gallows atop the very same hill. A fact that only gives credence to the local rumors that the site is cursed. So there lies the question. Was Janet Device's untimely passing, karmic retribution, Or maybe just a bit of bad luck? Or could it be that the grounds of Pendle Hill hold on to a somewhat darker power? Well, as always, I will let you make that call for yourself. This episode of Haunts was written and produced by me, Courtney Hayes. If you've been enjoying the show so far, I would greatly appreciate it if you could give it a follow or leave a review. A lot of work goes into each episode, and supporting the show really helps us reach more listeners each week. Also, if you are interested in learning more about today's topic, I highly suggest checking out the show notes section on the Haunts website at hauntscast.com. This is where I link all of my sources and share any visual content that may be referenced during the show. Finally, if you would like to receive sneak peeks or updates about the show, make sure to sign up for our email list on the Haunts website or follow us on social media at HauntsCast. Thank you for listening, and until next time, happy haunting.